Hello, and welcome to another edition of EdChoice Chats. I am your host, our VP of Communications, Jennifer Wagner, here at EdChoice, and I am joined today by our VP of Legal Affairs, Leslie Heiner, who has a million updates on all the litigation that's going on right now in the school choice world. So thank you for joining me today, Leslie. Thank you, Jen. You're right. There is a lot to talk about in the legal world. So that can be both a blessing and a curse, but we're trying very hard to make it a blessing and not a curse. Uh, So on that happy note, I'm happy to tell everybody about what's happening now. So this year, we saw the state of Tennessee pass a new voucher. Now, it's, it's called an education savings account, but it is a voucher, though, that will also allow people to, after they pay tuition at a private school, to then use some of the remaining money for therapies, et cetera, like a more traditional ESA. However, not everybody's happy about that. We hear that parents are very happy about it. However, the Shelby County and Nashville Metro School Boards have made very public statements that they intend to sue to block the program. Now, there are, of course, anybody who opposes these types of school choice programs, they have all kinds of different reasons. But in this particular case, the legislation affects those two areas in particular. Shelby County is primarily Memphis and then also the Nashville metro area. And their constitution prohibits basically targeted legislation, and so they're alleging that they've been targeted by this legislation. But the fact of the matter is the legislation is geared toward those school districts and those areas where they're experiencing the highest rate of failure, where the kids are not getting the full kind of education that they need. And it just so happens that in the state of Tennessee, those are the two areas that have the greatest need and that have been experiencing the greatest failures, which in our way of thinking is where parents need the most help. So they have, in fact, promised publicly that they will be suing. So you can look for that. Take that to the bank and and wait for that lawsuit. And I think our other would-be-could-be case comes from a state where we've seen a lot of litigation in the past, and none of it has been successful. So what's going on down in Florida? Yes, Florida. Uh, You know, if there wasn't a lawsuit going on in Florida, I don't know what people would do. I don't know how they'd spend their time. They have been really burdened, oh gosh, for I guess it's been now 15 years or more that uh, they've had litigation over all kinds of different forms of school choice, which interestingly enough has been very successful in Florida. There are literally over 100,000 children today that are experiencing a better education because of their school choice programs in Florida. But that has not stopped the opponents of school choice. So this year, Florida enacted a new voucher. Uh, It is a statewide voucher. It's limited to kids from lower income families, not just low income, it goes a little into middle income families as well. However, Ron Meyer, who is an attorney for the teachers unions, has made a very public statement that they will in fact be suing to stop this program. They've also been joined in that commentary by the League of Women Voters, by the ACLU of Florida, and by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, who have stated publicly that they intend to join that litigation. Now, their main cause of action here is to say that the 
school choice schools, that they're not uniform with the public school system. And there is a uniformity clause in Florida's state constitution. In fact, previously, there was, uh, in 2006, I believe it was, they had a prior voucher program that was overturned by the Florida Supreme Court at that time in a decision called Bush v. Holmes, which has been roundly, soundly pounded, just disregarded by courts across the country as being not very good decision. <laughs> so there's been a, been a lot of concern that that decision really should be overturned. It's not good law. Now there will be an opportunity in Florida for them to right the wrong of that prior decision and uphold vouchers in Florida. Now that said, this promises to be quite the battle in Florida, just as every lawsuit in Florida has been. So if you are a supporter of educational freedom, if you're in Florida and you're a parent, then I urge you to speak up and make your views known about how important it is for parents to have the right and the opportunity and the funding to be able to choose the education that's right for their own children. And hopefully they will do that. And uh, I should know this, but I know in Tennessee there is an additional pending case that is not related to their ESA Voucher Plus program. Is there any pending litigation over legislation in Florida? You're right. There is an adequacy funding case that's pending in Tennessee. That one has been delayed. Not sure if that is connected or going to be connected with the the new litigation. We'll see. But in Florida, though, it's just about the voucher now. The prior case that had been active for 10 years was won by the proponents of school choice, I'm happy to say. And the courts actually in that case said that these school choice programs do not violate anything regarding uniformity. They're actually, um, the, both the lower courts, trial court and appellate court found that not only that, but they confer a benefit for all these children. And when the children are benefited, the state benefits and it's all good. Everybody's happy. <laughs> Families are happy. Students are happy. And that's why we do what we do here. That's exactly right. So moving on to the state of Maryland, kind of an interesting case developing there with respect to their LGBT discrimination law and their voucher program, which falls underneath that law. So talk a little bit about what's going on in Maryland. In the state of Maryland, a few years ago, they adopted a voucher program called the Boost Program. And as part of the Boost Program, they have a very specific provision in the program that says that any school that participates in the program must agree to accept all children, including all children LGBTQ, so open admissions, essentially. So the program has been very successful. It started small, but it's been growing actually very nicely. However, just this year, the state kicked out one of the schools. Bethel Ministries is the name of the school. It's a Christian school and has called on them to return about $100,000 that the school received from the parents of children who attended the school using vouchers. Now, this school did not <laughs> deny admission to anyone. They do not intend to ever deny admission to any LGBTQ student. So 
it's not that there is a violation of the law that has occurred. It has not. However, the state basically looked at the school's website and as a statement of faith at this school, they believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, and they believe that your gender identity is granted to you by God at birth and should be cherished and not changed. That's their statement of faith. Now, that doesn't mean that they will deny admission to anyone who does not necessarily conform to that statement of faith. And this, of course, for many schools of faith is always that question. Just like even in my own family, we're not Catholic. We moved our children from public schools to Catholic schools. And there are some things that the Catholic Church teaches that we don't follow. But we worked together and we found harmony and our children received a truly great education, which is often the case when LGBTQ students attend religious schools where the faith believes something very different from where those kids are, where their families may be. But nonetheless, they learn how to live together, work together, become educated together. So this action by the state of Maryland is really very preemptive. It's wrong, and it's just uh, clearly discrimination against this school because of their faith, not because of any action that they have taken. They have not taken any actions wrongfully. Well, it's fascinating because there are so many different facets to this case. There is the Federalist issue of Maryland passed a program. They put this into their program. They put the LGBTQ non-discrimination language in there. And they had schools that didn't participate because of that. But this school chose to, chose to, to, to sign the pledge hasn't kicked anyone out, and actually, from the news stories that I've read, was willing to change their handbook to say, you know, affirmatively, we would never, ever kick any of these students out. So you've got that angle, and then you've obviously got this brewing debate, which will probably be a topic of a completely different podcast, (laughs) um, over, you know, LGBT students. And then, I mean, juxtaposed up against, you've got states like Florida that have passed anti-bullying school choice programs, and we know from research that's done by the national organization GLSEN, which goes out and does an annual poll of LGBT students, we know that those students are disproportionately bullied in public schools. That's correct. So that, you know, whether it's a school in Maryland or one of these schools in Florida, like they are seeking other options because they're not being accepted in the public system. So more of a a commentary than anything and a preview (laughs) of coming attractions. But that that case out of Maryland is going to be a really interesting one to watch. It will be, yes. And I think that's another one of those where people should be paying attention to this. Because if nothing else, we will all learn many lessons from this litigation. Absolutely. And now we get to get to the big kahuna, the (laughs) one that everyone's talking about, the case that just got accepted by the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago. So tell us about Montana and and what that case out of Montana, this little tiny tax credit scholarship program, (laughs) the little engine that could get all the way to the Supreme Court, and could very well eliminate Blaine amendments and pave the way for school choice programs in states that have never had a chance to present those options to families. Yes, you really teed that up perfectly. In Montana, their program is the the smallest in the country. Of course, it's a small state. There are a few people who live there in a very, very big state. 
but they're lovely people. The plaintiff in this case is a woman named Kendra Espinoza, and Kendra lives up in uh, Stillwater, Montana, and uh, she chose a school to send her children to on a scholarship. She's just really struggling, even with the scholarship, just struggling to make ends meet and make sure she can send her kids to the school of her choice where they really needed to be. They had some, uh, some issues for why they needed to be in a, in a different environment, smaller environment, where they would get more attention and just be valued more one-on-one. -on -one. It's working out very well. But then their Supreme Court came along and said, uh, well, we can't do this tax credit scholarship program in the state of Montana. And they cited their constitution, where they have a Blaine Amendment, that says that there can be no funding directly or indirectly of religious institutions from the state. Now, for those of you who understand school choice, <laughs> you will also understand that school choice does not fund private schools. School choice funds parents. Parents then decide where and how their children will be educated with that funding. But the Montana Supreme Court missed that point altogether. Not the greatest decision I've ever seen uh, written, uh, but uh, apparently the U.S. Supreme Court, well, they never give their real reasons for why they accept a case, but I'd like to say they accepted the case at least in part because Montana got it wrong. Now, there is another big reason, though, and typically, and, and not to be so glib about it, but to be more legally accurate at this point, that people should know, that the U.S. Supreme Court will accept these cases from a state Supreme Court not on a regular basis, but they will accept it when there's been a conflict across the country. And we definitely have a conflict in this area. In some states, there are no Blaine Amendments, so this kind of restriction about allowing religious private schools to participate in school choice programs, just um, it, it, it's not an issue. But in other states, it's prohibitive. And the courts in these various states, like for example, in the state of Oklahoma, they have two Blaine Amendments, very restrictive, however, their Supreme Court came along in a very surprising decision, 9-0, said that, no, we're not going to follow these Blaine Amendments. They're discriminatory, and, and we're not doing it. And the funding goes directly to the students. They're not going to religious institutions. But then you have other states where maybe they have a less restrictive Blaine Amendment, but legislators are really nervous about the constitutional question. So if you have a Blaine Amendment that is restrictive about the state funding in any way religious institutions, a lot of people get nervous about going to court, you know, and being sued, and, and so they may hesitate to pass school choice programs. And I, I do want to jump in real quick because I think for those of us who work in school choice, we know what these Blaine Amendments are and where they came from, but it's important, I think, if you could spend just a minute and talk about, because I think it's a fascinating history of K-12 education that gets overlooked in our country, that these amendments that prohibit public funding from going to religious institutions are born out of a profoundly anti-Catholic sentiment that seized the nation 
in the late 1800s. And that's that's how we got this patchwork of states that some have these restrictions, some have more severe restrictions, and all because James Blaine just really did not appreciate the Catholic <laughs> faith and made wanted to make darn sure, not damn sure, darn sure, uh, <laughs> that that money never never went to any Catholic schools or Catholic anything, honestly. So right. can you right. talk a little bit about the origin of those and kind of how we got where we are, that the Supreme Court is ready finally to take up this issue? Oh, sure. Yeah, James Blaine was from Maine. Blaine from Maine. Uh, what are the odds that those names would coincide like that? But It'd be a hashtag these days. It would be. Yeah, yeah. maybe it should be. We should talk about this. Uh, so he was, uh, he'd been in Congress, and then he was Secretary of State. And what he tried to do is to have a constitutional amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would insert this provision of no direct or indirect funding of any religious institution in the U.S. Constitution. Well, that effort failed. Uh, word has it in the history books that he was um, personally affronted by that, not very happy that the country said, no, we're not going to do that. And so then he went about the business of trying to get every state to put these Blaine Amendments in their state constitutions. Now, you'll find on the east side of the country that some states have the Blaine Amendments, other states don't, and they may vary in the wording also. Some are very, very simple and they're not very extensive, others are a little more so. But as you start going west, west of the Mississippi, then about that time when states were looking at statehood, what happened was then adopting a Blaine Amendment in your state constitution became a requirement for statehood. So there are some, like in South Dakota, I was just reading not long ago how they're pretty unhappy about the fact that this was forced upon them and now they're left to live with it and they're not quite sure what to do with it. But the discriminatory nature of it was really profound, especially as it applies to education. Because at the time, public schools were, well, you could call them Protestant schools because the Bible was taught, Bible verses were read. Some of you who are older, who are listening to this, may remember being in elementary school when somebody wrote read a Bible verse every day and then, you know, and there would be a prayer for, you know, please, please let me learn and not fail my test today. <laughs> but that actually could be done openly and, uh, and not just uh, secretly by children who hadn't studied not enough the, the night before. So what happened was this, when Catholic immigrants came over, and maybe some people know, maybe some do not know, but the Catholic Bible has a few other chapters in it. So it's a little different than the Protestant Bible. And so the Catholics also wanted theirs, their readings to be included also. Well, and this is what really started the fracas of, oh, we can't, we can't have that. We can't have these Catholics uh, infecting our public Protestant schools. So this, this clearly was religious discrimination. There's, it's well documented all across the country. And so this very discriminatory language is still existing in the state constitutions of 34 states. And as I said earlier, the courts and also the states 
have treated these amendments in very different ways. So it can happen that you either have school choice and you have certain religious liberties because you happen to live in a state that has a court that has ruled well, or you have a leaders who have stood up to this restrictive language, or you don't have those opportunities because you live in a different state where the courts have been restrictive or your leaders are, are just concerned and nervous about going forward. That's not right. And so this, I mean, it is not an understatement to say that, as you said in your preface, this could be a landmark case, but this yes. could truly open up the landscape of educational choice in places that, whether it's because they have a, a bad local or a state court ruling or because their elected officials just don't want to touch this issue with a 10-foot pole because they're afraid of that litigation, <laughs> that right. that obstacle, those barriers would or could potentially be gone. And so... That's correct. How... If that happens, and I realize that lawyers don't like to live in the world of hypotheticals, <laughs> but if that were to happen, if the court comes down and says, you know what, goodbye, all of this anti-Catholic, all of this history that we'd rather just close the door on because it doesn't make us look really good as Americans, do you think that states would kind of rush forward and pass more school choice programs, or is this going to sort of trickle out and and people are going to try to find their footing, and that we might see like a gradual expansion over the next five or ten years? Well, I think that um, that people generally are cautious about reacting after there's been any kind of court decisions, even if they're real favorable. So, it, you know, it takes time. I mean, just like choice, whenever a voucher program is enacted in any state, the opponents will always say, oh, well, if this happens, then all the public schools will close tomorrow and it'll just be a travesty. And, of course, that never, ever happens. Not true. It takes time for first parents to understand, okay, now there's a new opportunity. So what does that mean? Okay, first parents need to get that information. Then they need to really try to understand what it means in their own family and then, of course, if you're a parent, your child's in a public school, you have a new opportunity, but then you also have to wait, but does my child need this opportunity? If the answer is yes, and that's just great, and that parent is going to rush to get that opportunity for their child. But if not, then the child will stay in a public school if that child is successful there. So it really is a... Um, it's just a human process of communication and, and evaluation. But I do think that there are plenty of um, legislators and also parents in states that have been just restricted and they felt really pretty held down by the situation. I think they'll be quick to act. I, that, I think, will happen. And I think they'll be very quick to act on that. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court is a pretty great body. They don't always say everything that we want them to say in exactly the way we want them to say it. So people should also understand that uh, the ruling that comes down on this case could be very narrow or it could be very broad. So it could affect everyone or it could be more limited in its application. That's purely at the discretion of the Supreme Court. But the bottom line is this, that these Blaine Amendments 
are contrary to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. That's really the, the question on the table presented to the U.S. Supreme Court to, to answer that question. Is this, in fact, the situation where these Blaine Amendments are contrary to the U.S. Constitution, like, like we believe they are? And it does sound like, and just to kind of recap a little bit as we, as we conclude here, so obviously we've talked about Tennessee and Florida. Those are kind of off in the distance, things that are going to happen. Maryland is underway, but it's my understanding from, from talking with you that, I mean, the Supreme Court is kind of in a bit of a rush to, to hear this Montana case. They yeah. accepted a cert on it two weeks ago, but they've asked for all interested parties to, to brief the case in the next couple of months. Is that right? Oh, even quicker than that. Uh, yeah, actually, the uh, first briefing deadline is uh, August 12th. That's really soon. Um, but there has, yeah, there is an extension of time request. Uh, but that may or may not be granted. Um, and there's no real guidelines for that one way or the other. Um, a lot has to do with the Supreme Court. You know, they decide a lot of cases during the course of the year, and everything has to be scheduled so it's really part of the scheduling, whether there will be an extension of time or not. Uh, but in the big picture, though, we expect that the briefing in this case by both sides will probably conclude uh, this fall. The oral argument in the case may come as early as uh, maybe December of this year, or it could go into the early part of next year. Um, and with or without extensions of time, that's generally speaking, the time frame that we're looking at. Now, just because they hear the case doesn't mean that they're going to decide it the next day. Uh, they do take their case, they take their time, and especially on cases that are this big, that have the potential to um, to be the landmark decision that that really makes some significant changes across the country. Uh, they they will take their time, be very deliberate in their decision making. However. Uh, they will decide the case, though, before the end of June next year. So that's our time frame. Um, you can be, uh, you, you can look to us for more information on this as we go along. Uh, we do intend to file a brief at the U.S. Supreme Court. We filed a brief at the Montana Supreme Court. We filed a brief at the U.S. Supreme Court in support of asking them to please take the case. We will be filing another brief before the Supreme Court in, in support of this case as well. Uh, so you can uh, please check back with us, and we'll try to keep you informed. We absolutely will, and, and it, it should, uh, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit here in saying that you say we, and it is we as Ed Choice, but you are the head of our Legal Defense and Education Center here, and, and you do a lion's share of that, that briefing work, and so, um, you know, Forgive True. me, but I just want to say thanks for, for all that you do. And I know you work with partners across the Thank country you, to, 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 to make that happen. But you know, to have our voice heard in this conversation is, is profoundly important. We've been doing this work for 23 years, and a lot of it has been against the tide of litigation and against the tide of you know, historical legislation and, and constitutional amendments. So, um, by the way, folks out there, if you're listening, you can go on our website and donate to support uh, the efforts that we, because uh, as it turns out, uh, yes, legal stuff too. isn't cheap. It's not free. <laughs> no, um, it is not. <laughs> but, uh, but it is a labor of love. And so, yeah. Leslie, thank you for all that you've done uh, for families across the country and at the state level. And, and you know what? Maybe we'll get to go out to D.C. and uh, hang out outside the, uh, outside the court and, That's right. and see history in the making. 
Oh, we'll do that for sure. We'll do that for sure. And, and, and I would like to add here, too, you made a point that I think is really important. Um, we stand with families. Uh, one thing is really clear. The, the mission that we're on for school choice is about empowering families. We just believe in that so strongly that uh, parents, families should have the right to decide how and where their kids are, are educated. And this case coming from Montana is just, it, it began with a family. It began with a family that had a real, real need. Um, I hope that we can bring uh, Kendra Espinosa more to light so people can get a sense of who she is. Uh, she's just a real dedicated mom just trying to do right by her kids. That's the long and short of it. And uh, she she shouldn't be she shouldn't be hampered by the state based on some crazy law that came from some crazy guy out of Maine who didn't like Catholics. Yeah, that, that's just that's just wrong. And it's wrong that um, that hopefully our U.S. Supreme Court will write very soon. We will, uh, we will stay tuned. You can check out updates uh, on our website, edchoice.org. As Leslie said, we will definitely keep posting about these cases, this ongoing litigation, and anything new that comes up, good, bad, or otherwise, for the issue of school choice and for educational opportunity for families across the United States. So thank you again for joining me today, and thank you all for listening to another episode of Ed Choice Chats. Thank you, Jen.